where I'm in home renovation, absolute hell. I spent two blessed hours this morning listening to Mayor Bill de Blasio and his wife, Shirlene McRae, who's now heading important task forces and uh, doing things. And uh, the first hour of this, while people wanted to talk about this funeral gathering in a city of Williamsburg last night, and the mayor's response to that including a tweet calling out the Jewish community that engendered some really harsh responses. None of that came up for an hour. Well, he talked about a new helpline that's getting set up for first responders with help from the uh, military and his wife, the first lady. And look, we've all talked about this, but I'm just finding the mayor and his inability to queenly message and his insistence on continuous family electioneering, really, really frustrating at this point. And, you know, as New Yorkers are looking for some clarity as to to what's happening and what's coming. Harry, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think my column next week is going to be called Harry Siegel listens to de Blasio's press conferences, so I don't have to. Um, So I appreciate (laughs) your service. Because I think that the widespread nepotism is actually getting a little bit egregious. I mean, I, I definitely think that the tweet was misworded and misguided, but I don't think that anyone would argue that de Blasio has not been friendly to the Jewish community, the Hasidic community in particular. So well, After I think, his time on the council, yeah. I, people are saying that this was atrocious and queerly anti-Semitic and so on. It, it, it just seems, if you know anything about de Blasio, that's a lot to swallow. It was really, exactly. really badly worded. It's terribly worded. So it's like, but let's also not get confused with the issue because I think, you know, we have a mayor and his wife who take their three, four car SUV bandwagon to Brooklyn every weekend to go stroll around the park, even though they have one in their backyard. And I think that this is just an overall sense of frustration where, you know, de Blasio also has set up like different sets of rules. I mean, he obviously knew this funeral was going to take place. He sort of coordinated with the police. There were only 12 summonses that were given out, no arrests. I think some New Yorkers like myself are wondering what would this look like if this were in Harlem or Washington Heights or parts of the Bronx. 
uh, we know that this would not necessarily be the case in the coordination. So you have that one piece. Then you also have this, this ill-worded statement that he's put out and has danced around. But I think overshadowing all of this is de Blasio in a press conference with his wife announcing yet again that she is going to be in charge of yet again a massive entity to be undertaken in the city of New York with some obscene budget that we have yet to really know about. And I think finally people are starting to say out loud, what are the qualifications and how will we measure success with someone who is clearly running for a higher office sometime next year and seems to be given this power and responsibility with a little oversight? A quick shout out there to Julie Marsh of the New York Post, who in fact asked about Shirlane McRae's qualifications to run this task force that is looking at discrimination and inequality in the COVID response. They also announced this helpline that she is also involved in today. But she asked, what what are your qualifications exactly? And got a lengthy, hectoring non-answer from de Blasio, followed by the uh, first lady saying, my staff will be glad to email you those qualifications. I would say it was like a little bit of a scolding, actually, which was commented on heavily among the press corps, which was just a very clear pivot, like an obvious kind of defensive pivot. What I wonder also about a lot of these press conferences, and I listen to every single one, is while people are waiting for clear guidance coming up on what's going to be month two of rent and mortgages due, there is no clear guidance and no signal toward, like you can take 45 minutes to announce a partnership with health and hospitals and the DOD headed by your wife and like, you know, talk about wartime, well, talk, yeah, but talk about wartime analogies and how both your fathers were in World War II. And that's great. But what people need is some clear guidance on what to do about rent and what's available to them on rent. And if you're going to spend 45 minutes on anything, maybe spend 45 minutes giving out the phone numbers and the names of the resources available to people who have no money and are lining up for food banks or about to. It just seems wildly irresponsible. The mayor of D.C. did it this morning. And it wasn't what people wanted to hear. Nobody's saying, okay, don't pay your rent or like, rent strike or anything like that. But what they are saying is we have started to plan for the inevitability of this much debt on low-income people and even the middle class coming out of this crisis. And it just boggles my mind that none of that is addressed in a concise or clear way when it could be, even if your answer is we're working on it, because they're not. There are calls for a midday rent strike here. We'll see how far that goes. I think this is going to be a lot less uh, political statement than people making the hard decisions about what to do with their limited money. And obviously, those filter up to landlords, not all of whom are so wealthy themselves, but there's just a lot of money that's not getting passed through right now. And we don't really have clarity about when things are, understandably, are, are going to be reopening. Like One of my big concerns, the, the trains, and I talked with Nicole Jelanis at the Manhattan Institute about this. We'll play a little later in the episode, are utterly critical to getting Manhattan running. But along with those, there's this question of what happens with the schools in the fall. First off, if they're going to be able to reopen, if they're going to be staggered classes. But past that, what we're doing with all of these students, they've just finally announced weeks after the closures, like new grading standards, 
which vary by grade, but are effectively meant to ensure that no one is punished for all the disruptions. We're going to talk about those that the coronavirus and distance learning have created. But we also just don't know a lot else that's going to happen. If there's any plan to catch these students up, if everyone more or less in effect principals make decisions is just going to get advanced whether they're ready or not. And there doesn't seem to be, just like there wasn't for the closure, and that understandably, a lot of preparation for working these big decisions out in this huge disruption into people's lives and into kids' education. I went to City Ads High School, which they actually grade people on the only pass uh, standard that's now being given out. So like nobody's failing if they have a hard time getting to class or, or doing things like that. But the kids will have an option, or kids, parents, whoever, will have an option in the high school years to just take a passing grade so it doesn't negatively affect their GPA if they think their grade is going to be something that would negatively affect their GPA. And I went to a school where you only had a pass-fail, which was its own kind of thing, but you had to exhibit that you were able to complete the work and had a, a mastery of whatever subject it was. And it's an interesting thing to employ, and it's much more done in like alternative school situations primarily. So I found that pretty interesting. Beyond that, I don't know how they would implement having an example of a mastery of the subject. Well, I think that's the complicated question that we're seeing on all levels, right? Not just in a higher education where I am, but, you know, in high schools as well, because I think this pause that we're on has really exposed a lot of the inequities that a lot of students are facing. Even if they are at the same type of school, they're not going home to the same homes, you know, that have uh, internet access or even quiet spaces. I know that there's some students who are trying to do all their work in the bathtub just because that's the only desk that's available. You know, speaking to a colleague of mine who runs a charter school, only 50% of his students have internet access and some sort of laptop or computer at home. The other 50% have relatively no way to get their assignments or get anything done or, or, or keep up with, with learning. So I think we're talking about several different buckets because some people will have grades that they'll try and negotiate pass-fail versus the letter grade, but then some students will have nothing at all because their parents or caregivers just don't have the, the capacity to provide them with it. And as some of us may have read in the city, there's a headline, parents expecting iPad deliveries got a knock on the door from child welfare workers instead. Sometimes they're knocking on the door because truancy is one of the things that a child welfare worker can come knocking over. However, we've heard from parents in Brooklyn that people are being told, oh, our attendance taking is broken or don't worry about it, but they don't have their iPads yet. So they don't have their iPads, they don't have their internet hookup, the iPads they're getting, uh, it's not working with the kind of reception they have in their house, and so they're being tagged for truancy. Now, that's not exactly a bad thing because, you know, first line of defense for noticing child abuse is usually the teachers, but at the same time, if you have money and you can get on a computer, you're going to be visited a lot less by child services mm -hmm. than most of the people in NYCHA. And it's just like a very unfair, you go into any household, and I'm talking as someone who probably should have been taken out of the house. You go into any household and you're going to find something. There's a school teacher source I have who is talking about how a kid can say, I'm so hungry, I have nothing to eat. And they have to be smart. They have to report something if they see it. So they say, well, okay, are you, do you actually have nothing to eat or are you just hungry and you don't want anything in the fridge? 
And they're like, no, I actually have nothing. Okay, send me a photo of the fridge. In this particular instance, there was definitely food in the fridge. The kid just didn't want like what was there. So teachers have these very strange decisions and they're getting a different glimpse into homes that maybe they don't have, depending on the teacher, a lot of experience with. And that can be scary for people who live in a different New York than some of these kids do. And teachers are mandated reporters. There's no way legally or ethically that they can overlook things at the same time. This is, of course, one of the functions of the school system is as a way to monitor households and the safety of children. Better Does every one of these teachers know what they're seeing if they see a house with 10 people in it or if they see a cockroach or if they see a fridge that's low on food? You know what I mean? I don't know how to answer that question, but it's a question I don't think the city's really had to look at before. Well, I think, but going back to our earlier point in our earlier conversations, like if you have people who are running these types of systems, you need to have them fully trained. And I understand that, you know, this pandemic came up quickly, but, you know, some of these mechanisms should have been in place a long time ago. And we know that when parents are stressed out financially, that's, you know, obviously domestic violence and child abuse are increased. But I think this is my frustration with the mayor's insistence that his wife be in charge of really important entities because there is no background or training for her to even know what she doesn't know and lead from a particular vantage point. I think de Blasio would argue that, that she's staffed and those people are professionals and that he insisted, even when he was running, that they were a package deal and his family has always been politically important to him and that he made no bones about that. You know, the flip side is he basically became mayor in a low turnout primary, uh, not a low turnout primary, a primary in which he, he needed very few votes because of the size of the field. And it was incredibly low turnout as well, though. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, he's just sort of been able to put her in, in these very significant positions. And with Thrive in particular, we're talking about billions of dollars with almost no serious or measurable results even as he's sort of continued, including today, to double down on this brand, that she has some some expertise and, and especially profound connection, as he might put it, with people's mental struggles and how those should work. But when, when the rubbers hit the road, you know, the results really haven't been there. And at this point, with her openly looking to run for Brooklyn Borough President, and in the midst of a pandemic, sort of staging press events that are nominally coronavirus briefings to give her screen time, just strikes me as a, a really distasteful thing and very distinct from the help he says is needed and the, the wartime footing that he says we're, we're on. Yeah, all of a sudden we started getting press invites to go watch them as a couple applaud healthcare workers in Elmhurst, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that started happening probably a week and a half ago, I'd say. Well, you know, I'm sort of of two minds because it's so clear that they want to be back in Brooklyn. It's just like, fine, just, you know what, run, go back to Brooklyn as soon as possible because you clearly are not happy being mayor, Mayor de Blasio. Like, you don't like being on the Upper East Side. You clearly want to spend all of your time in Brooklyn. So make that happen then. But I, I think what I'm really frustrated with, and Harry, we've talked about this several times, I actually didn't vote for a two-for-one deal. I voted for one person. I'm not voting for them and their spouse. I mean, we had... Michelle Obama, who worked for free for this country for eight years, and like as brilliant as she is, she didn't decide to, to run the hospital system, which is what she did in Chicago. I mean, they sort of knew better than to try and do this kind of Clinton-esque two-for-one deal. And especially because the first lady, McRae, does not have a background in public health. 
I mean, I understand she's been very clear about mental health struggles in the past, but that doesn't make you a mental health expert. You know, just because people like to cook, that doesn't mean you can run a restaurant. So I don't understand why in, in such a crucial moment for our city, when people are literally dying, like we know that people have definitely been suicidal and have needed some urgent care. But this is an instance where we need someone who understands, like with each passing minute, how important decisions are. And it's not enough just to have a figurehead with good staff. You need someone who knows how to deploy that staff and also have measurements to make sure that we know what we're doing is actually helping the, the citizens of New York. So speaking of measurements, let's hear from Nicole Glennis. Hello? Hi, Harry. Nice to be on with you. Thanks for taking the time. So fill our listeners in on the state of play for New York State and New York City with their budgets right now, with things on pause, and how that's looking and where the federal government is with potentially helping with any of that. Well, I think the big picture is that none of these budgets are in any kind of good shape. If you take it from most catastrophic the MTA, which runs the transit system, including for suburban commuters coming into New York City, I mean, they really face a budget catastrophe, looking at probably double-digit drops in ridership at least to the end of the year, but with no concurrent drops in costs because they have to run extra train service relative to the ridership because they don't want people crowded onto trains and budgets. So, they're going to need a lot more federal help. I don't see how the city comes back without them getting more federal aid. And then if you go to the second most problematic, although nowhere near as catastrophic as the NTA, the city budget, I mean, the mayor has unveiled a $94 billion city budget for the fiscal year that starts July 1st. They're estimating about a $7.5 billion drop in revenue. I think they're probably looking at more of a $13, $14 billion drop in revenue because if you think about the city taking in $66 billion in annual tax revenue, not unreasonable to think that they're going to lose 20% of that or $13 billion. So it would be prudent to, to err on the bigger side of the revenue drop-off. And we see little indication that the mayor understands the seriousness of this. I mean, he's just doing things like canceling beach season, which saves you pennies compared to the big picture of the city budget. You know, nothing on do we need to see a broad public sector wage freeze because there's no private sector to pay for the regular raises that the public sector workforce gets. And then last in the scale of how bad are things is the state budget. It's still a pretty bad situation there, but hopefully as economies outside of the New York City region start to open up, you'll see sales tax, income tax start to stabilize for at least the 40% of the state that's not related to New York City, but certainly no way to sugarcoat it. They'll all need bigger versions of federal bailouts but they shouldn't expect federal bailouts to just sort of hold them harmless for all of the bad budgetary decisions they've been making for years. So how would that work to, uh, to, to get that support? And, you know, Cuomo and others have objected to the term bailout. 
so that it was related to how the coronavirus and the shutdown of the economy have worked and not to other existing issues like Medicaid uh, within these budgets. Yeah, I think that's a fair enough point, and we want to do rescues, not bailouts. So I think some uh, reforms that Congress could do, which hopefully would be easy, as my colleague E.J. McMahon says at the Empire Center, no rescue money to pay for raises for state or local workers. You know, the absolute minimum anyone is going to get out of this is a wage freeze this year. I don't think anyone in the public sector should be expecting to get their regular raise this year, whether it was bargained or not. And tying it to basic provision of public services that you have to agree to maintain your police service, your sanitation service, the things that rebuild the tax base. I mean, having the funds tied to some of those basic things would be reasonable. On the other hand, do you want a 100% bailout as opposed to rescue for something like the New York City school system, which has added 2,300 administrative jobs over the de Blasio administration? No indication that we need that level of staffing. De Blasio added 400 new workers just to his own mayor's office staff over the past six and a half years. Are these the types of things that we want to hold harmless? Probably not. I just went back and was reading the uh, famous New York Daily News cover, Ford to New York Drop Dead, and then went in and read Ford's full speech and the day's coverage. And one of the things that jumped out at me was that at that point, Ford said, we'll make sure that essential services keep running in New York. And, you know, the, the city may have to go bankrupt. To be clear, he eventually put several billion dollars, two point something into the city. But at this point, he said, no, you know, this is your problem. You screwed up your finances and the rest of America can't bail you out for your mistakes. And while he was saying that essential services would continue, you know, you had reporters asking about this and White House aides telling them on background that education, for instance, altogether, not you know, excessive administrators wouldn't count as an essential service for these purposes. So I know once you, you sort of get into some of this austerity math, if you like, that, that these can become really tough decisions. The question I have here is how chicken and eggy is this reopening with the trains, with the schools, with the regions? You know, can Manhattan really reopen if, if Jersey City is closed? And what are the parts we need to start in that direction? assuming we're past uh, the worst of this wave of the virus. Yeah, and, you know, to get off the federal rescue topic, I agree, and I think any rescue should err on the side of too much money, not enough, because we see this happening on the corporate side. It's like we pushed all this money out, and now we want to take some back. And now all we're doing is creating more uncertainty. You know, if some people or some governments or some businesses get money that they didn't really deserve, that's better than having a lot of people and businesses that need money and they're not getting it. Just like in any disaster, there's going to be some unfairness, there's going to be some fraud, but we should err on the side of too much rather than not enough. But yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right that it's going to be very chicken and eggy that the number one thing is the transit system. 
I mean, Manhattan is basically dead unless we figure out a way to get large numbers of people comfortable riding buses, trains, and commuter rail again. I mean, these methods of transportation bring more than 7 million people into Manhattan or into in and around the city every day. You cannot replace 6 million people on subway trains a day by having them drive in their own individual cars. It'll just be completely chaotic. And yeah, if if people aren't comfortable getting on a commuter train from New Jersey, from Westchester, from Long Island, then the city's workforce doesn't rebuild itself. And then businesses say, well, if people don't want to come to Manhattan, why are we in Manhattan? We might as well move to like Arizona or whatever. So I think there's a lot of fragility. And some of the first steps are the MTA is going to need more money. I mean, you know, as we talked about, they can't do this if they have to make service cuts. That'll just put us multiple steps back. And the only party that can pay to provide service right now is really the federal government. But beyond that, I think they're going to have to think about as the economy starts to open up, do you want to have a sort of army of employees with bright T-shirts on saying, you know, welcome back, counting people going into stations, directing people to the less empty train car, telling people at the top of the stairs, you need to wait a few minutes till the next train clears so we don't have a crowd, calling in any people sleeping on trains or, or urinating and so forth, and just kind of creating a comfortable environment for people who are going to feel uncomfortable. The other thing is I think the MTA is going to have to give out new but reusable masks to passengers at major stations, hopefully paid for by the federal government. But yeah, that's the key thing. If we don't get people comfortable on transit, then we won't really be able to open up Manhattan. City can do things too, you know, more bike lanes, more bus lanes. Most people probably can't take a bike to work, but just like in the 1980 transit strike, to the extent that people can, then the trains are less crowded for the people who can't. I think schools are also going to be big because people can't get on the trains. A lot of them don't have a school that their kid is in for the days, but it's a lot of moving parts. One yeah, more, I, more question for you is I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to learn to be a time efficient podcast host, <laughs> but I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh, New York had, had a pretty rapid economic recovery after both 9-11 and then in 2008, for a bunch of reasons that I think had to do with how much of a driver Wall Street is here and how the world money kept flowing here because this is such a dense city. It seems to me that density might be the enemy now. And without getting ahead of things, I'm just interested in your thoughts on how this recovery uh, appears like it might compare to those uh, as we move forward. Well, I think... Certainly the scale of losses is much higher. Like we've never lost more than 6% of our private sector jobs before, either after 9-11 in the tech bubble or seven years later after the 2008 uh, real estate bubble burst. And in this case, the city has already lost more than 625,000 jobs. At least that's that's how many people applied for unemployment. That's probably an undercount because people are still having trouble getting through to New York State unemployment. So that would be 15% of our 4 million private sector jobs. So we've never seen a job loss on that scale. The good news obviously would be because 
these job losses were because of a temporary shutdown that is supposed to be obviously temporary once the economy goes back to work everyone goes back to their job that would be a real pause but the risk and i think it's a pretty credible risk is that it will be a slow recovery do all of the people who have left manhattan do they come back to live here do they come back to work here if office workers don't feel comfortable coming back into the city and they continue to work at home there's not a base to support retail restaurant jobs if global tourism stays shut down there's not a base to support hotel jobs a lot of high end restaurant jobs how do you reopen broadway i mean i saw that theater the the barrington festival in massachusetts they took out 70% of their seats so that their uh their patrons can socially distance for the summer festival broadway can't survive with 70% of the seats gone so a lot of questions about how long the recovery will take i think there's things the city can do to put its finger on the scale i mean being very strong with transit uh the mayor setting a good example with his own socially distancing and trying to make it clear that we're all in this together uh but i think it's it it will be t- difficult another thing is we built a lot of real estate in manhattan that was empty even before this crisis and that's true you know most acutely on the residential side but also we probably have an office market overbuild you're going to see some price adjustments there and in the long term those can be good i mean if real estate is cheaper more people will take a chance on the city but in the short term a lot of developers are going to resist these price declines and unfortunately they're going to get cheap money from the federal government to try to hold out as long as they can we should really be clearing these markets so we can jump start them What's your view of how the feds are doing with this so far? I don't think all that well. I mean, this paycheck protection program was a mess. It's like Jesus. Congress could have said it's only for businesses under a certain amount of revenue. They can't have any corporate parents. But Congress didn't say that. I mean, they specifically carved out exemptions for hotel and large restaurant chains. And I'm not even sure what the objection is. Like the Lakers can either take paycheck protection or they can lay everyone off. It's like right. either way the federal government is paying. The whole point of it was supposed to be so you can reconstitute your business quickly because you haven't laid these people off you don't have to go find them and get them to come back to work which seems like a reasonable goal even if it's a larger company i also think that doing this through the banks which i understand just in terms of trying to have this work quickly was a mess a whole number of different ways so you know you have all the big banks going to the preferred clients first who thought to apply and that eating up a large portion of the loans but also that the banks were really resistant to getting into this because the terms weren't clear and you see this with with Mnuchin sort of changing them around and pushing people to get these back now that bankers initial fear of we don't know exactly what business we're getting into here i th- i think was pretty seriously justified and seeing city now saying they're going to donate all the fees is is an indicator that this is not going according to plan Yep, I mean it seems pretty wise to donate the fees cuz I saw that there was a little article somewhere that like oh they're getting like a $100,000 fee for basically making a risk-free 
like $10 million loan. But again, Congress created these problems and it's just like TARP. I mean, you could have made a different bill, but they didn't. They prefer to blame other people for just sort of following Congress's imprecise instructions and then the imprecise regulatory instructions. And the whole thing about people getting paid more on unemployment, on the separate program, they could, to the extent that that's objectionable, I mean, the IRS knows how much money you make. Congress could have said that the supplemental unemployment insurance will be capped at your 2019 income. Like, it's just adding a step. What was your income in 2019? Anything you get above that will be clawed back. I mean, there is a sort of long-term issue that, yeah, if you're getting paid 30% more than you were, you're not going to be in a big hurry to go back to work. It also, I think it screws things up with people who are in tip-based businesses uh, pretty substantially. Yeah. Um, it's just hard to get them back to empty or half-empty, you know, bars or restaurants or whatever. Yeah, and, like, there's going to be a lot of chicken and egg stuff. Like, if people don't come back to office jobs quickly, then there's not a lot of business for restaurants and retail stores. And so do you want to take the risk of buying food and staffing up only to see business at like 25%? Yep. Yep. It's all chicken and egg. This is schools, trains, the whole thing. It's, uh, yes. it's easier to shut down than restart. Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time and um, I hope we'll continue this conversation. Thank you, Harry. I hope so too. And hopefully our problems in the future will be good news. Knock on wood. F-A-Q. Sometimes I like someone tricking out, baby, as you know, like a six-inch heli through the middle of my skull. At night I wake up with the sheets soaking wet and a freight train running through the middle of my head. I'm Christina Greer, and my co-host is Harry Siegel. We're both reporting from the borough of Brooklyn. We'd like to thank Nicole Gelinas from the Manhattan Institute for joining us this week. Our executive producer is Alex Brooklyn. Our producer, Adam Kamara, mixed and mastered this episode. We used to record at NYU's Mixover Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and we will hopefully return there shortly. Until then, be safe. We were just starting to fix the plague of stuff nice, too. I had the New York State flag. We were going to do the cool montage of old newspaper clippings. It bums me out that I can't redecorate our FAQ recording room more than it probably should. (laughs) 
We'll get back there one day. I mean, I, I just know hope the rats haven't taken over. I mean, I keep reading all these stories about like the rat wars in Manhattan. People are like, <laughs> if you don't drive your car every day, this one woman tries to start her car after like five weeks of not driving. And her mechanic was like, you're the fifth person to bring in the car. You've got like a whole family of rats in your engine. Like, it's I just- had that. Oh, I-, I thought you were going to say that rats swarmed the-, the cabin of the car. No, no they- it's like the rat wars are happening. And we're yeah, losing. rats and mice like live in your- It happened to me. They chewed through my starter cables. I didn't know what was wrong. Now I have to check the hood like every day, every two days, make sure there's no poop in there and spray some cleaner in there so they don't like it. That's crazy as hell. Why is it because your car was made out of like old materials that they consider to be alternative foods like natural rubber? Maybe. I don't think so because it seems like rats is like living in in engines. Yeah, that was sort of the story that I wrote. It didn't it didn't have like a you know, it wasn't like antique cars. It's just like they just like cars. Yeah, but I, I've never encountered a car not starting because it had been eaten by rats. Like this has never happened. My right? mechanic said. My mechanic said it happens more than I think. Okay, maybe <laughs> I've just been lucky. Yeah. And like the rat wars in Manhattan are serious. I mean, I don't know if you all saw the pictures of like the rat beef in New Orleans. Like they're getting bold, and everyone's like, "So once we finally get out of this and we start going back to restaurants, your favorite restaurant may not be able to sort of." get up and running as quickly as they think they might because even if they were super clean they said a rat can fit through a hole the size of a quarter right, right yeah, they won't be able to suppress the rats have you ever heard a rat fight i hear them all the time now it's sirens and rat fights they're like this oh yeah yeah well the thing is they have different territories Someone when must restaurants have were, that, right? yeah, I've been emailing my students because they're obsessed with the rat wars. But um, they have different territories, which and because they're slightly different, like not genetic species, but they they are slightly different. And the beef is now that um, you know the restaurants are closed, they have to sort of venture out into neighborhoods. So the different sort of gangs of rats are now interacting in spaces that they weren't before and getting more interesting. More 